Uh, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 1 uh, is a sustained exposition of the Son's superiority to angels after the prologue where you're told about how the Son is supreme over all things. Uh, chapter 1 gives you through Old Testament texts uh, a sense of which, of which in how the Son is superior to the angels. And then the author begins to apply his argument. If the Son is supreme and if the climactic revelation of God comes through His Son then how ought you to respond? So that's what he's dealing with now. So Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. We'll read verses 1 through 9. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding... And every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet, at the present time, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now, again, uh, for, for most of you, I, I don't know uh, what the circumstances of your week have been like, but here you are uh, today. And honestly, uh, I'm glad you're here. Uh, whether it's uh, coming in rejoicing, uh, whether you're coming in excited, uh, whether you're coming in a little bit dragging, you're tired or fatigued in some way, uh, whether you're coming in bravely, and it was difficult to come here uh, this morning, sometimes there's a whole range of emotions and experiences that we have uh, when we gather together to worship the Lord, and to meet with His people. So I'm, I'm glad you're here. This is where God wants you to be uh, this morning. Uh, the very fact that you're here is proof of that. And God desires you to be here this morning. We're glad that you are. Uh, before I look at this text then, I'm going to ask that you just take a moment, uh, just, just as an individual, just to, to lay yourself open before the Lord, uh, ask Him to help you to understand, help, ask Him to help you to grow. But also, if there are other things that you need to say to God, then, then now's the time. Now's an opportunity to do that. And after just a few moments, I'll lead us in prayer.
Our Father, we pray that you will send your spirit in a powerful way, your, your power and personality that can move not only externally, but that can move internally in our hearts and minds and souls. We pray that your spirit will be active, your spirit will search and transform. Father, help us this morning to have a sense of your son's greatness and his power. Help us have a sense of how great this salvation is that he has provided, that he has accomplished and finished for us. Father, if there are any who are in danger of drifting away, we pray that through your truth and by your spirit, they will be uh, moored safely to you and brought back. We pray that your Son will be exalted in our midst and in our minds and hearts. We pray that we will understand how he fulfills uh, Psalm 8. We pray that we will understand what it means that he has actually experienced death for us and that the world to come is subject to him. Lord, you know our frailties, uh, not, not merely our physical and mental and emotional frailties, you know our spiritual frailty as well. And so we look to you, uh, we look to you alone for strength. We pray that you will bless us so that you have a holy people to bless your name in return. We pray that you will equip us to worship you, equip us to know you and walk with you well. We pray for those who are uh, with uh, the children this morning. I pray that they will have a sense of your presence and that they will see fruit for their labor. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, this text, of course, uh, verse 1, really begins uh, with the word, therefore, you're being tied into what's already been said. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard. In other words, sometimes people, and, and I, I bristle with all of this language, sometimes our, our terminology is extraordinarily, like shockingly unhelpful. Uh, sometimes people talk about sort of doctrine and theology and things that are practical as if they're not the same thing, as if there's no practicality to actually knowing truth. Say, so, well, that's very interesting. You know, so, so we learn about God, but, but what's the payout? You know, when does it get practical? And, and I want to suggest that there's, in some ways, nothing more practical than actually knowing who God is. Uh, it is through knowing the character of God that it is through knowing the character of Christ and through the work of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit, it's through knowing God and His truth uh, that you'll be able to do things that are practical. And sometimes people just want to short-circuit that. They just want to, let's, let's get to the practicality. But that's not how, how the Bible operates. Uh, Romans and Ephesians, for example, Paul gives long doctrinal treaties and then he begins to apply it. And so, yes, there's a sense in which esoteric, you study doctrine in the abstract, is that practical? No. But you study, you try to learn about God to apply what you know, and there's nothing more practical than that. You need both. You need the truth and the application. Truth without application is useless. I do grant that for sure. But without truth, you literally have nothing to apply. And, it, it, and it's not awfully practical to be trying to apply nothing at all. 
So what you want to do is you want to steep yourself in truth and then move to application. That's exactly what this author is doing here. This is how great the Son is. He is the very image of God, the exact representation of His being. He's made all things. He's the heir of all things. He's greater than the angels. He's the Son of God. So, He's spoken in the past. God spoke to our forefathers various times, many ways. In these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son. So, the Son has spoken in these last days, this last era of salvation history, of redemptive history. It is the Son who is the final Word of God. And so, what's your response? Well, the author says, you better pay attention. There is not another messenger coming. There is not a supplementary message on the horizon. And there is no one who is going to eclipse this one. This messenger is the Son of God, the exact representation of the image of God. When He speaks, God speaks at the same time through His voice, because His voice is the voice of God. So, if you've ever paid attention in your life to anyone or anything, the author is saying, now is the time to put your listening ears on. The one speaking to you is the Son of God. Pay the most careful attention you have ever paid in your life. The Son of God is the one who is talking to you. And the reason you do this is that you don't drift away. Now, fascinatingly, there will be other images used in Hebrews. This one actually is very passive. This does not seem to be sort of intentional rebellion. This is not just storming off in a huff. This, is, this, this word is used of, of boats that just sort of they're at the dock. They're not tied properly. And they just kind of just slowly, very slowly start drifting away. That happens not so much through sort of peaked animosity and willful rebellion as much as it happens through apathy and neglect. And dare we say today, distraction. Endlessly distracting, amusing, entertaining, and so that the message of the Son of God simply has no place to come. It's always screened out. There's just no time for it. And over time, there's just an almost imperceptible drift away. I remember once, uh, a number of years ago, I was asked to go in, in, out to Manitoba at, to a camp and spend a week doing uh, theological training with their counselors uh, before the, all their kids arrived. And, and so I was you know, teaching various things. And one day there was a, the camp boat that they used for water skiing or whatever. That's not camping if you're water skiing, but that's another beside the point. Uh, the camp that they use for water skiing, someone had either let it go or as a joke or whatever, and it drifts down wherever, down this lake. So, so one of the senior counselors and I, we decided we're going to go find this boat. So we get in a canoe, and we're, we're canoeing, and we find this boat, and we're like, you know what? We, because we're phenomenal and not so great at actually rating our own ability, we are going to tow this boat back 
to the camp. So we take a painter line and we tie it to the boat and we start canoeing, towing this boat down the river. And it was fine. We were making excellent progress until we got out onto the lake. And we get onto the lake and the wind comes up and there's chop in the waves and, and we're paddling. Like I couldn't paddle as hard as I could or the rope would have snapped, but I was going as pretty hard and he's going as hard as he can and we're trying to paddle. And, and you're feeling like you're kind of like the, the there'd be slack in the, in, the, in the rope, and then it would hit taut and then slack, and, and we're paddling and paddling and paddling, and, and, and you kind of, you know, you sort of look over, and we're in this lake, and, and you kind of see this landmark, and, and paddling, and, and a few minutes later, kind of just look over, and I realize, like, we're literally not moving. Like, between the wind and the waves and our paddling, we have just managed to hit a place of absolute stasis. Like, we, we're on a treadmill on this lake paddling, and it's kind of looking over going, this isn't great. Like, we can't move this anymore. So we sort of just gave in to the wind and uh, realized that also wasn't a good plan when we started getting blown at a fairly strong pace towards the rocky cliff that had been our landmark and I'll spare you the rest of the story when, when their boat actually smashed up into the rocks. Uh, but nonetheless, the point is this. You don't necessarily know how you're moving unless you have a landmark. And that's the idea here. How do you know if you're drifting or not? How do you know if you're standing still? How do you know if you're making progress? How do you judge those things? If all you're doing is just paddling, you don't know. There has to be an external source. There has to be a marker around you that you can look at. And that's going to be the Word of the Son. That's the Word of God. That's why you need to pay really careful attention. Because if you're not paying attention, you might, know, you might not even realize you are drifting from God's truth. You might not even really notice that, oh yeah, you're doing your devotional plan, except, except you haven't actually put up the Bible in three weeks which becomes six, which becomes four months. Pay careful attention. Not to me. To God's Word. So that's the question. Do you? Would, would, if people watched you in terms of your own attention to the Bible, would they say, there is never a time when that person is paying more careful attention than when they're paying attention to the Word of God? And if not, that really begs the question, why? Is, is someone else more important or more authoritative than the Son? Is, I mean, granted, there is doubtless a whole universe of worthwhile material on Instachat or whatever these things are, but like, are you really paying more attention to that news feed than to, this, to the Word of God? And of course you'd say, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not forming my life on the basis of social media. Of course I'm not. Take yesterday. If someone observed you, would they say you paid more attention to social media or more attention to the Word of God? Maybe yesterday was an anomaly, one way or the other. So what about, what about 2020 so far? Not just quantity, but quality. 
Where do you pay the most careful attention? That actually will show you what you care about. Where Jesus says, where your heart is, there your treasure is. Or sorry, where your treasure is, there your heart is. We don't say, oh, my heart's in heaven, but if your treasure's on earth, it's not. You say, oh, yes, I really care about the Word of God, but if you're not paying the most careful attention to it, then you're privileging something else. Something else will shape you, and you might not realize you're actually drifting away. And I think this happens, this happens all of the time, particularly culturally. If we, when we pay a lot of attention to culture, if we're not anchored to the Word of God, what we end up is we start gravitating and drifting into a lot of cultural views. And so then a lot of our thinking actually isn't really formed by Scripture at all. We've just drifted. And I would insist the same is true of church culture. Culture has, it's not just contemporary, today's culture that's affected the church. A lot of churches are, actually, a lot of conservative churches are more bound in captivity to culture from the 1950s or 1920s than they are to today, but they're still just as culturally biased. They're just behind the times. There's no virtue there either. Where do we pay attention? For, since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? Now, Galatians and Acts both speak of Old Testament law being mediated through angels. This is not something you really get so much uh, in, in Deuteronomy itself, uh, but the New Testament picks up this tradition of angelic mediators that provided parts of the law. The point here is this. If you're tracking in a system where you, where you recognize the law was mediated through angels, the whole argument in chapter 1 is that the Son is superior to angels. And so if the message that comes through angelic mediators is binding, and there's destruction for ignoring it or rebelling against it, How will you possibly escape, the logic runs, if you willfully ignore the message that comes through the Son? The Son is greater than angels. The message through angels is binding. How much more so is the message that comes through the Son binding? What will you possibly do if you ignore that? God had no patience. God had no sort of, um, there there was no room for movement inside of the message given through angels. Every violation received its just punishment. This is a greater messenger. It's the, it's the Son of God Himself. This is the supreme final word. What will you do if you ignore it? There's, not, there's nowhere else to go. There's nowhere else to turn. Now, the warning is also indexed and calibrated to this. It is not only the only message of salvation, although it is that. It is a great salvation. Do you realize that? Salvation is not a small deal. Christ does not provide a mediocre salvation or a good enough salvation, or even a really pretty fine 9.9 out of 10 salvation. Christ provides a great salvation. Nothing can be better than what Jesus Christ has done for you. 
nothing in the universe can eclipse the perfection of the work of Christ in salvation. It is a great salvation. Not only forgiveness for sins, but purification from them. The righteousness of Christ given to us. Reconciliation and restoration into a right relationship with God. Death defeated. Eternal life. Now, this is the thing, too, I, I can honestly say, this is, this is one of the reasons why, in a sense, there is absolutely no purpose and point in ever preaching in a church. We can say things like, death is defeated, all of your sins are forgiven, there's purification, you're restored into a right relationship with God, you will have eternal life, and no one bats an eye. It's just, well, of course. That's why we're on social media. There's better stuff there. And I'm just wondering, what will I do this afternoon? This is what Jesus has done. When's the last time you paid attention to it? I mean, you see, part of this is, is our proclivity as we get older to think that there's always merit in moving on to something new instead of actually sinking into the riches and glories of truths that are inexhaustible and unfathomable. In other words, you don't need to learn a whole bunch of new facts about your salvation. You need to think about what you already know. What does it actually mean to be loved by God? In the gospel, you are loved by God. Jesus has provided you with a great salvation. If you ignore it, there's nothing else. This salvation was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard Him. That is, there's been eyewitnesses, the apostles. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. This sentence, verse 4, would actually be well worth working through in some care and detail. Uh, I'll bypass that for now and just say this. As much as it is amazing that the Son speaks for Himself, God also, to, be, to strengthen weak faith, provides all kinds of exterior sort of subsidiary corollary signs that Jesus really is from God. And the reason the author mentions this is that the people knew it. That is, this actually has the resonance of, of factuality. He doesn't argue for it. He doesn't defend it. He simply states as a fact that they know perfectly well. They've experienced this power of the Holy Spirit. They are aware of the miracles that have been done. They are aware of the operation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the church. Now, we have not seen the apostolic miracles. But as John Owen, a theologian in the 1600s, points out, we have the infallible record of their having occurred in Scripture that is in the Word of God. So, though we haven't experientially witnessed those apostolic miracles that were done in the first century when the church was being built, we do see with absolute certainty that they occurred because God has said so. That is, we have the divine witness to it. Now, on where I would like to, so this was adult Sunday school, which it's not. Uh, what I would do is go on a little bit of just a, just a little tiny bit of a rabbit trail for the first time in my life, indulging in one of those, and, and, and suggesting that maybe, just maybe, there actually is also room 
in contemporary experience for a little bit more of the power of the Holy Spirit than we've yet experienced at Crestwick Baptist Church, maybe there's a little bit more room for the Spirit to be active and to do things which are so incredible that it can only be attributed to Him. I get nervous, frankly, that still a fair bit of our growth can probably be attributed to sociological factors. What you want is to see something that can unmistakably only be attributed to the work of God, nothing else. And that's what the author here points to. He basically says, you know perfectly well that what you've seen, what you've experienced, could never have taken place if it wasn't the Holy Spirit of God confirming the message of the Son. Now, another reason moving forward to pay the most careful attention is this. It is not to angels that He has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, the Son of Man that you care for Him? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. So, the age to come is not under the rulership of angels. You might say, well, I mean, is today really under the rulership of angels? Well, in some ways, yes. Yes, God is always ruling over everything, always, forever. Yes, the Son is ruling over all things now. But there are powers and principalities of darkness. Satan is called the ruler of this age, the prince of this world. The book of Daniel talks about uh, God sending an angel, sending Michael to Daniel. And, and as he's coming, he's, he's stopped. He's confronted. He's, he's blocked by the prince of Persia. There's an, some sort of demonic being for a period of time. So, yes, there, there is a lot of, of power with angelic and demonic beings today. Different parts of the world are far more aware of this experientially than we are. But the world to come is not subjected to angels. It's subjected to people. In fact, one person particularly, the Son of Man, through Psalm 8. The world to come is subject to the Son, not to angels. Because someone once said, what is mankind that you are mindful of? The old Psalm 8. Now, Psalm 8 the one that was read earlier at the beginning of our service. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's, the, that's, your, that's your inclusio, beginning and end. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And as the psalmist thinks about the earth, he begins to think about people. What are we? You know, I'm just, not anymore, but you know, it used to be just slightly less agile than a gazelle. And so, you look at that gazelle and you go, you know what? I used to be fleet of foot. I used to be like that. But on my best day, that gazelle was just a little bit faster. You look at strength, the the lion or the bear or the elephant. You go, you know what? I'm almost that strong, but just not quite. You look at the birds and their ability to fly. You look at fish and their ability to dart through the water. And you sort of look at the animal. You go, basically, There's nothing that I have to offer physically in this world. 
Now, you, know, you, you, you hope that you come in slightly above the average animal in terms of IQ, but some days you're not sure. And, and so you're sort of looking around going, like, like, what are we? And then you look at the stars, you look at the mountains, you look at the ocean. What, what, really, what are we? This is one of the reasons why in the world, if you're thoughtful, there are a lot of people who are very thoughtful atheists, and they run into an enormous amount of despair. It's partly personality, partly personality plus worldview. But if there's literally no reason for you to exist on this speck of a planet in this massive universe, it's really hard to wake up in the morning chipper and cheerful if you really think about what you are in universal temporal context. That is, in the great span of time and in this universe, if there's no reason for you to be here, and after death, the, the concatenation of atoms that is your body just dissolves and all your personality is gone at that time, that is, the person you are ceases to exist. What's the point today? Really? Chicken wings in the Super Bowl? That's the point? What do you do? You look and you say, I'm, I'm, what, what are we? We're, we're, we're just so small, we're at a vanishing point of insignificance. We're nothing. But it's not only that. It's not only that you're small and fine. It's also that you're wicked. Take a look at life. Take a look at history. Look at the brutality of people. Look at the atrocities that have been committed. Why do you care about us? If you think about us in terms of the universe, we're just so small to the point of being nothing. If you, if you think about us in terms of the, the actual significance of our own lives, it's virtually pathetic. If you think about us in terms of goodness, we're, we're just so utterly wicked, it's hard to fathom. And yet, we are God's image bearers. There is a glory and honor and dignity to being human that no other creature has. And this is one of the reasons why we know, even if a worldview denies it, we know intuitively human beings do have dignity and rights. And the reason people push for human rights is precisely because even if their worldview conceptual scheme denies it, they recognize that person has dignity because they are an image bearer of God. There's a point and a purpose for them to exist. But, but frankly, apart from God, there is no foundation for universal human rights. It's, it's, it's an it's utterly incoherent. But we know, oh, there's value in that person. In fact, I think probably, the, well, I won't say I think, I, I, I'm convinced that the best explanation for the data of how can human beings be both so simultaneously so wonderful and glorious and so horrible and lousy is precisely the biblical view of human beings that is originally created in the image of God, fallen and corrupted into sin. That accounts for both. The, the image of God effaced but not erased. Corrupted but not destroyed. And so you look around, and yeah, people are, are awful, but also amazing. Both are true simultaneously. The biblical data holds, that biblical anthropology holds both of those things together. Why does God care for us? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. Really? Everything is under our feet? Well, 
In Genesis 1, God gave people the mandate to rule and have authority over creation. But that original mandate was thrown, a little a, a wrench was thrown into that plan in the garden when human beings sinned against God and, and failed to control the created order. That's part of the reason the serpent's there. It's a failure to control creation. That is, in the garden, sometimes you wonder, well, why does the serpent seem to have authority? Well, the fact is the serpent, the serpent doesn't have authority there. Adam and Eve are supposed to put the serpent in its place. That's their job. They failed to do that. They failed to uphold their creation mandate. It's stewardship. So now, we seem to be dominated by the environment in many ways, and we horribly exploit and demean and diminish the environment in many ways. That is, that is, we now find ourselves sort of locked in this struggle with each other and with the natural world. We certainly don't see everything under our feet. We're not ruling and reigning over all things. And, and, and the greatest example of this, of course, is death. We do not rule and reign over death. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at the present, we do not see everything subject to them. In other words, we certainly don't see the world doesn't behave as if it is totally under the authority of human beings. Have you noticed that? You, you, you try to accomplish something, and it seems like the whole world is against you. Have you ever noticed that? Everything's working against you. You can't accomplish what you want. But what do we see? We see Jesus. We see the Son of God. He was made lower than the angels for a little while, but now He's crowned with glory and honor. That is, you see the language of verse 7 is being pulled into the analysis of who Jesus is. He was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor. In other words, the author is saying everything humanity was supposed to be in Genesis 1 and Psalm 8 is fulfilled by Jesus. He is the representative human being, the representative son of man. Where Adam failed, Christ succeeds. Where humanity has failed, Jesus doesn't. And so, he is the one who praises God. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He is the one who in his incarnation, who becomes a human being. This is actually one of the fascinating things, just, just for free, that the, that the author just kind of throws in here implicitly is that this works because the Son, I mean, who's the Son? Read verses 1 through 4 again. The Son decided to become a man. He assumed genuine humanity. That's how we can fulfill Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is about human beings finally through the grace and empowerment of God actually one day being what they were supposed to be in Genesis 1. What they lost, what they threw away, it's restored. It's their destiny. It can only come through one representative man, a covenant head. The first Adam lost it. The second Adam restores it. And for a little while, as a human being in the incarnation, he was made a little low. He's sort of placed in, this, in the system where the angels rule and all of the rest. He was made a little lower than the angels for a little period of time. But now, crowned with glory and honor, everything will be put under his feet. That includes the angels. Everything in the world to come will be under Him. Why? And this is where, if you actually don't know much about the Bible, 
you almost drop the book in disbelief. He was crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because, causal word, this is why. What did he do? He died. He suffered death. See, wait a minute. Crowned with glory and honor doesn't usually get logically connected to suffered death. But with Jesus, it does. He's crowned with glory and honor precisely because he dies. Causal reason, so that by the grace of God, wait a minute, crowned with glory and honor, fulfilling Psalm 8, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, the death through which he is crowned with glory and honor, through which he fulfills Psalm 8, all comes about because of God's grace. So that by the grace of God, he might taste it, he might experience death for everyone. Through his death and resurrection and ascension and exaltation to the right hand of the majesty on high, he is the representative human being who restores to us our creation, destiny, and mandate. He makes you what you were supposed to be. precisely by paying the penalty for you, destroying who you were in your own sin and rebellion. He died your death. The exact representation of the nature of God became a man to die so that you could be the human being you're supposed to be in the sight of God and also experience the destiny of the new heavens and new earth, where you will have dominion under Christ, and all things will be under your feet as you are under Christ. Because the world to come is is subjected to human beings. The covenant head of that human race, that new humanity, is Jesus Himself, the Son of God. And the only reason we have that eternal life and destiny is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was willing to suffer death by God's grace so we could be saved. That is a great salvation. And there isn't any other one. And so if you ignore this and don't pay careful attention to it, what will you do? There just is no other option because the world to come is only subjected to Jesus, no one else. He is better than angels. He tasted death and overcame it. He will rule for all of eternity, the Creator, the Son, the man, the God, the Savior. Is He your Savior? He is your Lord because He is Lord of everyone. But is He your Savior? Have you put your trust in Him? 
Are you willing to humble yourself and recognize that the world to come is subject to Him? He is eternal love and life. You, this is something which should be somewhat, somewhat exciting. Do you know, the one who is in charge of the next several trillion, trillion, trillion years of your existence is infinite and perfect love. And He loves you infinitely and perfectly. That's the one who rules all things. I promise you, things will go well with you there. Things will be well with you in the new heavens and new earth when eternal love rules and reigns on your behalf. Because there, He will not suffer and die for you. He will live in fullness of joy for you and with you. That's what we will experience how do you know that you won't drift away? It's pretty scary to think about. Pay attention and also recognize this, that as you pay attention, it is not your strength, it is His. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. Forever. He'll get you there get you through death. He'll get you to the new heavens and new earth. And when you're there, you're there for good. You're there for keeps. You're there forever. I'm asking musicians to come and lead us in our closing song. So our Father, we thank you for uh, the gift of your Son, Thank you for uh, the gift of the Spirit, and we pray that this morning you will help us to, in our hearts, pay the most careful attention to your Son. Help us to see not only the benefits of a great salvation, help us to see the glory of a great Savior, for we ask it in His name, amen. Go in grace and peace.